0: So what I'd like to do is go ahead and answer another question. This is a really good one. Uh, y'all have some great questions that have come in um, um, you know, over our email at info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. Also our comments section on our YouTube channel. These are uh, really good. This is another good one. This one comes from Laura A., and this is in response to our prophecy brief, The Fullness of the Gentiles where we discussed what that concept meant that Paul talked about in Romans 11. What does it mean that the fullness of the Gentiles come in? Well, in in response to that, Laura A. sent a comment. Thank you for teaching on this topic. Well, you're very welcome. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about the growing belief within the church of preterism. I have spoken to a few people that believe the thousand-year millennial reign has perhaps already happened, been covered up, and that now we are actually in the short season of Satan. That would refer to in Revelation 20, where Satan has been bound during the millennial kingdom, and then is released for a short time to go and deceive the nations uh, in bringing together that last group of unbelievers who will ultimately uh, bring con- come in conflict uh, with Christ in Jerusalem. Uh, they cite several scriptures, but a few of them that I can remember are... These are the passages that have been brought up. Matthew ten, twenty-three. Uh, and there's a handful of passages mentioned here that I'll go ahead and address after I discuss what what we mean by preterism. What is that about? Um I will say I don't have a preterist view, but it is an interesting theory. God bless you always. The only thing I will mention here or speak to you here before we move into the discussion itself is the idea of the um of the millennial kingdom having already happened and been covered up, and that now we're past that period in the in the um season of Satan. Well, you know, Matthew 24, uh, verse 30 and 31, talk about how Christ is coming in the clouds and power and glory and the nations mourn and the angels are sent forth to gather up the elect and the nations are weeping. <coughs> probably didn't miss that. You know, uh, we probably didn't, you know, that didn't end up on page 13 below the fold in the newspaper or something. Chances are that one Probably would have not have escaped notice. Somebody would have snapped an Instagram pic of that or something. Um, so I, I, you know, it, it does fall in line and I don't mean to make light. I apologize if I'm being a little facetious about that. But, but this does present one of the problems of, with what is known as the preterist view. And so let me go ahead and spend a little time discussing, uh, this idea of the preterist view, uh, which essentially believes that, that the prophetic passages in scripture Daniel in his forward uh, sounding prophecies uh, Matthew 24 uh, Revelation chapters uh, 6 through 18 uh, passages like this uh, various passages you know throughout the Bible that that refer to the last days uh, the millennial kingdom things like this the view that those passages are not speaking of something future to our day. They would have been future to the day of those who spoke them, but ultimately they are not future to our day because they were ultimately fulfilled uh, no later than at the close of the first century. Now there are within two, within the uh, field of preterism, within that view there are a couple of camps. One is what is known as full preterism. This is the idea that all prophecies that would appear to have been forward thinking to our day actually aren't, but rather again, as I just mentioned, have been fulfilled and were fulfilled no later than the end of the first century. When Daniel prophesied, his prophecies uh, dealt with a period of time from this, you know, the 7th century B.C. until the end of the 1st century A.D. Uh, <coughs> again, forgive me, my voice is still kind of in the process of coming back. But um, but again, uh, they basically ended at about the time or shortly after the time of um, of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, within the preterist view, there's a, there's a number of things in view. I'm not going to do full justice to the whole discussion here. But as always, my intention here is to give a meaningful um, exposition on these things, but then leave you to go ahead and look further into it. But I'm going to go ahead and speak a little bit to this and uh, this idea of full preterism, which is known by a number of other names, too. It's uh, I think it's it's rightly called consistent preterism. Uh, I'll explain why when we talk about partial preterism. But it's also called hyperpreterism, and there's a number of different names. But basically this idea, when preterism is spoken of, it speaks of the idea of that which is past. That's what the Latin term that the word preterism comes from. It comes from the word preter or praetor, uh, which means past in Latin ism speaks to a, uh, a philosophy of hermeneutic that would, that would believe that the passages in question have happened in the past. They're not something we're looking forward to, but rather they're something that we're studying as something that happened previously. So again, full preterism would, would be the idea that um, all of these passages uh, refer to a period of time that is past, now, there are lots of nuanced positions within the field of preterism. As a matter of fact, uh, there is a a view today that is growing a little bit uh, in, in popularity that's sort of viewed as an eclectic version of preterism, meaning that it's pulling from a few different things. In particular, it's pulling from a more traditional view of preterism, of, of partial preterism, and blending it with a bit of futurism. Uh so futurism by the way by contrast is a view that I would hold the idea that passages like the ones we mentioned and and of course you know many others again these would speak to events that are yet to happen even in our day they have not yet happened but are a future even to our day uh things like the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet as Jesus referred to in Matthew 24 um uh, or or that Paul spoke about in the Second Thessalonians 2, or that we see in Revelation 13. Uh, I think that these are I these are um, these are facts that are yet to unfold, these are events, I should say, that are yet to unfold, yet in the future to our day. We're looking for them to still happen. And there are reasons why we look forward to them happening, and we'll talk about that again as we make our way through. Uh inherent in this view, the full preterist view, uh is that um, the covenant with Israel ended in 70 AD as a matter of fact Titus Vespasian's attack on the temple in Jerusalem uh where the temple was destroyed is seen as as being the fulfilling of those passages that speak of the uh of the uh, tribulation period um uh, Titus is seen as the Antichrist who ultimately destroys his God's hand of judgment upon the Jews, meaning that the covenant with the Jews also ended in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple and any of the promises that yet remained or things that might still be uh, yet to be embraced and fulfilled would now be appropriated to the church. Now, again, not every full preterist necessarily holds all those views that specifically. There are nuances within that. So you always want to, if this discussion comes up, you want to ask back and forth what we believe about these things. What do you believe about these things? Is this your view? This is how I understand it. Is that true for you? Um, <coughs> um, this is an area, again, unlike the gospel, that is, there's really no wiggle room on that at all. A view of eschatology. Obviously, there is uh, some wiggle room, and, and so there's various nuanced ideas within any view, really. But um, certainly within the preterist view, that's no less true. Um, however, you can see, by the way, if, if the if the wheels are turning in there, when we talk about the covenant with Israel having ended in seventy A.D., well, that means that if the church now inherits whatever promises remain, that becomes something that falls within the realm of what is known as replacement theology. Now. I think there's wiggle room, again, in terms of trying to understand eschatology, but something like replacement theology, I think is absolutely wicked and from the pit of hell. I think that is, sorry I'm sounding so strong about that, but a proper Israelogy is a, a massively important thing. Replacement theology is, is partly responsible for some of the greatest atrocities ever foisted upon the Jewish people, God's chosen people to whom he made covenant promises that are not only unilateral. In other words, they don't depend on Israel's faithfulness, but rather on God's faithfulness. Uh, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, you have to read those passages, and you will see that both the people and the land are the promises that God makes to Abraham, and they depend on God's faithfulness, not Israel's faithfulness. Uh, I've often said, when this converse in this kind of conversation, that in Romans 11, Paul builds a case about God's faithfulness based on this very idea that God's chosen people remain His chosen people. And Paul's own desire is he'd be willing to give up his own salvation if it meant their salvation. But he believes, and and, and demonstrated throughout his teaching in Romans 11, really nine through eleven, but eleven reaches the climax of the case, the argument that God's faithfulness to Israel is the evidence, the proof that we know he will be faithful to us. And that's a massively important thing. And so when we talk about the idea of the church replacing Israel, absolutely not. If you believe that, please stop believing that. That is absolutely an unbiblical, wildly off-base view. That, again, has been has, has been uh, part of the underpinnings of some of the worst atrocities on God's people and, and God's chosen people in history, but also completely screws up your eschatology, completely messes up your understanding of what these passages are talking about. Now, I'm getting a little ahead of myself and going on that little tangent there. But this, again, is something that while people debate elements of eschatology, it's important to recognize that ideas have consequences, and our views of eschatology are not unimportant. Though they are not on the level of the gospel itself, they are peripheral only in that sense, but that is not to say that they are unimportant. Uh, I think that's part of the reason why Paul taught eschatology to the church, a young church that he only spent three weeks with. And that's the church in Thessalonica. We have some of our most, um, uh, ex, uh explanatory ideas about eschatology in first and second Thessalonians, a church that again, Paul barely spent any time with. And he not only planted the church, but in equipping that church as, as young believers, he included eschatology. So we ought never think this is an unimportant subject. Um, so that being said, um, within the realm of of full preterism there is no ex uh, no expectation of the rapture of the church again there there 's in an eclectic sort of preterism there may be some room for that, but by and large, most people that are preterists don 't believe that the rapture of the church is going to come, certainly not pre tribulational, but many believe there's there is no rapture and and this would be true of partial preterism as well now uh, in in concert with this and in line with this thinking is the idea that Christ returned. Uh, back in 70 AD and began to institute or initiate uh, the judgment of the nations, which is still ongoing, but his return was spiritual in nature and not physical. Or literal as the passages might seem to present in scripture. And so his spiritual return basically was, was the establishing of the new covenant. Again, if the old covenant ended in 70 AD, the new covenant now is the one that's in operation and this is seen as the kingdom of God. This is seen as the millennium. Now in a preterist view, it is not unlike an all millennial view in this way that um there is not the belief in a literal thousand years, which is what a millennial means, no millennium, the idea of millennium with the negative in front of it. In other words, there's not a belief in a literal thousand year millennial reign, but rather the view, uh and to say they don't believe in a millennium is uh sort of a misnomer because they would just see the millennium as describing the period of time between Christ's first advent and his second. And so that would be the millennium. And so therefore they believe in a millennium, but not strictly speaking, a literal thousand year millennium. And so this becomes <coughs> really foundational to the view on this. So at this point, there is an intersecting between preterism and millennialism. Now that is not to say, let me be clear on this. Not every preterist is an amillennialist necessarily, and not every amillennialist is a preterist. There are, again, nuances there, which would take far too long to get into all this. But, uh, if you continue to study this on your own, you will find that to be true. Um, so that would, uh, uh, and, and by the way, the idea of, um, even something like, uh, and this, I want to mention this because this becomes a departing point between full preterism and partial preterism partial preterism believes that all of these same passages are past except for the last three chapters or really revelation 19 uh yeah well revelation 19 12 i guess again there's there's people with differing points on this but the last couple of chapters for sure chapters 20 and 21 would be something yet future they would still maybe miss yeah forgive me for saying but misinterpret um what is in view in those two chapters But they would believe that a literal second coming of Christ visibly to the earth to institute judgment is still yet future, but everything prior to that in the book of Revelation, again in Daniel and Matthew 24 and related passages, would be past. It's just the last couple of chapters of Revelation would be seen as future, hence the partial preterist. But by and large, much of the view in preterism remains the same between the two. Uh, one last thought on full preterism, uh, that makes them different from partial preterism is that in, in Revelation 21, for example, where there is mention of a new heavens and a new earth, this in full preterism is basically Understood to be the same kind of thing as Paul would have spoken about in Second Corinthians five twenty one, where he ta- or seventeen, I should say five seventeen, where he said, "If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away; behold, all things become new." This regeneration of a person, this recreation of a person in Christ, is sort of the same thing that is seen in view when Christ came spiritually to establish His kingdom. I vis a vis the uh, the, the new covenant uh, for these this last thou, you know uh, last couple thousand years, the kingdom of God has been on earth, moving forward um, and and such. Now, a partial preterist says, "No, we don't believe that. We believe that that is literal. That Christ comes and establishes his judgment and all this kind of thing, and, and then establishes a new heavens and a new earth." So there's that's the departing point primarily between uh, full preterism or consistent preterism and partial preterism, or as I suppose a consistent preterist would say, inconsistent preterism. I don't know if they actually say that or not, but the reason I would suggest that partial preterism is inconsistent is because of the whole point of adopting a specific kind of hermeneutic. And this, by the way, is why I'm a futurist, and I'm going to kind of move into that um, area right now. Um, um and I guess I should mention too one other thing here um uh that is required by preterism is that the book of revelation has to have been written by before seventy a d when the destruction of the temple came because um because the to to uh in order for this to be something that happened in the past then the book of Revelation had to have been written prior to the events that it describes. And so therefore, the destruction of the temple, Titus Vespasian coming with the Roman legions, uh, this being seen as the abomination of desolation, and therefore, uh, you know, the Antichrist came on the scene, and the person of Titus, and all this kind of thing. (coughs) That had to have been written about by John prior to 70 AD. Now, let me make a point here. Now, it, it is there is an argument to be made for the early dating of the book of Revelation. Uh, in, in John chapter, uh, is it John chapter 5? Where there is uh, mention of Jesus going to, uh, Solomon's porticos. And, uh, and when John writes this, let me see, is it John chapter 5 or John chapter 6? Uh, yeah, here we go. In John chapter 5, it says that after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porches. Now, notice he says there is in Jerusalem uh, this this Sheep Gate, with or the pool at the Sheep Gate, which is called in, in, having five porches. When John writes this, he speaks about that in the present tense. Well, in 70 AD, that was destroyed. And so, if in fact John was, uh, writing this before 70 AD, he would use the present tense. Uh, if he wrote it in, in 90 AD, which I tend to still lean toward, although I think this is an interesting point to make, uh, I, I like it in, in discussions on the early dating of the New Testament. This is a great passage to point to because, uh, John makes reference to something prior to the destruction of the temple. Well, that means his writing is before 70 A.D. That's a pretty cool hint to put there. Uh, So I'm a little torn between the dating of the book of of John. Now, the book of Revelation, on the other hand, uh, (coughs) that's different. That doesn't necessarily uh, imply the necessity of this having been written before 70 A.D., but the view in preterism is that all of the Scripture, the the book of Revelation being the last book of the Bible written, uh, uh, had to have been written then before 70 A.D., I don't know that you can make that case clearly about the Book of Revelation, like you could argue potentially for the Gospel of John. Um, but I also would argue that the reason that I would not hold that um, that 70 A.D. is 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 sort of the end of the discussion on this is because Titus didn't fulfill um, the the idea of the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation isn't the destroying of the temple. It's actually the desecrating of the temple with an image that is set up um, that ultimately is a vehicle through which Antichrist is worshipped. We discover this both from Daniel's writings, uh, Daniel chapter uh, 10 and 11, or I'm sorry, um, uh, 11 and 12, uh, talk about the abomination of desolation. Uh, Of course, when Jesus spoke about the abomination of desolation, uh, it was clearly after his time that he was referring to. So those who would hold the Antiochus Epiphanes thing in 165 BC, that rules that out entirely. But those uh, who would hold the 70 AD view of the destruction of the temple is fulfilling this passage in uh, Matthew 24 or even Daniel's writings. I'm sorry, but no, it does not because it does not line up with the criteria that is given to us in Scripture, and that kind of becomes my segue into why I'm a futurist. Um, There is required within the preterist view, both full and partial, a view that I really don't Espouse at all. I'm not a fan of it all, and that is this idea of spiritualizing or allegorizing the text. Now, this is a view that became very, very popular throughout the um, uh, the really the early centuries, uh, well into the Middle Ages even past the time of the Reformation, it was right around the time of what was known as the counter-Reformation, uh, that ideas like a, uh, that a full discussion of preterism was now starting to take root. But the ideas that underlie preterism, the idea of spiritualizing the text is something that goes all the way back to, um, to uh, Augustine and also um, uh, origin or Oregon, uh, you would choose to pronounce that. But The idea of understanding that there are levels of understanding in the Scripture. There is the most basic level, which is taking the text at face value, but there are deeper meanings that are spiritually gleaned from the Scripture, and that's the real place to camp out. That's the real meaning that we should apply ourselves to, not just the surface of the text, but the much deeper well, that much deeper approach, if you read things like The City of God, Augustine's classic work, uh, or, or really much of, um, Augustine's writing in regard to biblical um, interpretation and hermeneutics and such, his his embracing of this idea of spiritualizing the text led him into all kinds of um, you know subjective interpretations of things, like origin, for example, same thing. And therefore those who were students of Augustine, embracing this same philosophy of hermeneutic or the idea of how we interpret the text, um, it it gives birth to generations of of Bible students who see the text, in many cases, when they're historical texts, they would take them at face value. But when it comes to things like apocalyptic literature within the scripture, uh, prophecy, there is a tendency, a very strong, almost just completely accepted philosophy, that that is to be taken primarily allegorically. Um, and I won't say entirely allegorically, because again, uh, partial preterism embraces the idea that there is a literal return of Christ to establish His kingdom and create a new heavens and new earth, but just not all the other stuff. Well, I do have an, uh, an issue with that, because there is a, an assumption built into that that I think is unnecessary and unwarranted. And that is that we assume that apocalyptic literature, by definition, requires us to take it as uh, being allegorical or spiritualized why do we and I understand that when I say why do we do that I don't mean like I don't understand that there are reasons brought to that, but my response to some of those reasons is actually a single simple reason. there is possible <coughs> I believe and proper, I would assert, to take the scripture at face value unless there is an indisputable reason not to. When the Bible says that God will cover you in the shadow of his wings, that doesn't mean we're to take it that God is like a bird, right? But the allegory of wings does teach us something about God's protective and even nurturing character and nature. But Jesus tells us that the Father is spirit, right? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, John chapter 4. But at the same time, we understand that just because God is spirit, uh he is still described with anthropomorphic terminology or in other words terms that um that's a big word huh i've practiced that many times but anthropomorphic is the idea that qualities that are like human beings are ascribed to god in order to help us get our minds around various aspects of his character and personhood and that and so but that you know but but we understand that so we don't ascribe feathers to god but the concept is probably one that is—well, uh, not probably, it is. It's one that is very fitting to describe what God is describing in that. That doesn't mean, however, that everything that is like that in prophetic literature necessarily means it is that. It is possible that in the book of Revelation, uh, or in the bo- in Ezekiel, for example— uh, we talk a lot about Ezekiel 38 and 39, and we went through our study in the book of Revelation uh, not so far back— it is possible that the authors of those books, even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are applying terminology to things they're seeing to try and describe things that haven't been created yet. Uh, missiles and launchers and and things like that. The kind of devastation that Ezekiel sees and describes the, the aftermath of in Ezekiel 39— maybe describing something that hitherto has never been seen before. And so he uses terms that in his time would have been understood, but in our time seem quaint or maybe fall short of giving a full description. And we pull our hair out saying, well, what did you see there? And we, so we we try to understand that. But on the other hand, when the Bible says God is going to intervene on behalf of his people in, in, in uh, Ezekiel 30 and 39, um, so that the nations will know that he is the Lord— We should take that and understand that to mean that God's going to make himself known. We shouldn't necessarily then, therefore, ascribe arrows and bows as launchers and missiles, though it could be. We should probably understand that if God is doing things in that time, it may very well be that he is calling fire down from heaven. And that's not necessarily a nuclear explosion or something. We don't want to jump to conclusions when in fact the text can be speaking at face value of what is exactly trying to be said. Um, You know, on the one hand, they may be struggling for terminology. In other places, they may not be, and they may be describing exactly what's going on as God is showing it to them. And so I espouse the idea of taking the text as straightforwardly as possible um, unless there is sufficient reason not to. And when it comes to things like Daniel's prophecy about a thousand, about the, the Ancient of Days coming back and returning, when I see a mention of a thousand-year millennial reign, and the word thousand years is used a number of times in like six verses. It's used like seven times or something there in Revelation. And so there seems to be very clearly <coughs> this, excuse me, this, this idea that we are to take from that, that a thousand-year period of time is coming. Uh, And I don't think there's a need to spiritualize that. There's no external reason to say, well, this can't mean a thousand years. Why not? I mean, if we believe that people had longevity of life in the years just uh, just prior to the flood, and even a little bit after as the years began to dissipate, but in the generations from Adam to Noah, if we believed in longer and longer generations, why would it surprise us that there would be at the end? I mean, so many of the things we see in the beginning of the Bible— Take place at the end of the Bible, too, where we see sort of a wrapping up of these ideas, a uh, parallel in some cases. <coughs> so I don't have a problem with the idea of a literal thousand-year millennial kingdom. I also don't have a problem with a literal kingdom, because this is the promise, uh, part of the promise, included in the larger you know, picture of the promises given to God's chosen people, Israel. To whom again God gave promises that were not just unilateral in nature, depending only on His faithfulness and not on His people's, but also eternal. Again, Jeremiah in chapter thirty-three. Let's turn to that one actually. Jeremiah chapter one thirty-three. Um, I'm sorry, thirty-one. Um And in verse, I, for time's sake, I won't read the whole thing, but read like you know verses thirty-one through uh through thirty-seven. But I'm just going to read verse thirty-seven. 36 and 37, we're wrapping up a whole discussion about God's people, his people, called by his name and such. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. There's a lot there that people would argue and say, well, see, I mean, fulfilled in Christ, therefore the covenant's over. No, verse 37 answers that. Well, wait a minute, faithfulness to the seed, like Paul's whole argument with Abraham. No, the end of verse 37 answers that, what they have done. Yes, the faithfulness to the seed, sure, but as reflected through his faithfulness to his people, the, the larger, you know, group of people, and, and hence we see the millennial kingdom as a fulfillment of that which was promised to Israel. When Jesus returns and rescues his people from the hand of Antichrist, as the nations gather around them, and Jesus returns to them, and they then turn their attention upon him. Psalm 2 talks about this in more detail. And he ultimately puts down this whole uh, assault upon his people, and then ultimately rebellion against him personally. Well, if you don't, if you take everything allegorically, you just missed out on that whole breathtaking thing that the scriptures plainly say, and that's why I tend toward the idea that a straightforward reading of the text with the understanding that there is allegory in scripture, there are things that are obviously metaphorical, there are things that are parabolic in nature and even outside of Jesus' own parables, but other stories and things that are told that sort of run a parallel line in explanation of an idea and a concept, those things exist, But they don't negate the literal, straightforward reading of the text and just letting it say what it says. Um, I love in uh, how Daniel, for example, takes Jeremiah seriously when the 70-year captivity is just about up. Daniel knows that and goes to prayer because he understands that Jeremiah said, you will be in captivity for 70 years. Daniel didn't see that as metaphorical. He didn't say, oh, that just means a period of time. It's sort of vague and whatever. No, he said, oh, 70 years. He looked at his calendar and said, it's just about up. And he sent himself to pray. Jesus expected (coughs) the uh, Pharisees and scribes in that generation in his time to know the very day that he was going to arrive as Messiah in Jerusalem. That's why in, in, uh, in Luke 19, he condemns them and says that your destruction is coming upon you because you did not recognize this your day uh, luke 21 verses 41 to 45 and so you know there is so much encouragement to take the scripture seriously I, w- I would say literally, but sometimes we say literally, then you're saying, oh, God says that his feathers and all this kind of thing. I like to say seriously. Now, again, I'm kind of borrowing from Chuck Missler on that one. I like this, I like credit where credit is due, but I like to say seriously because there's no disputing what that means. It's like I'm taking the text for what it's saying. And sometimes it's allegorical. Sometimes there's metaphor in view, but by and large, Outside of those instances where that uh, is, and I think by comparison to what we're talking about, those instances are far fewer than the preterist view would necessarily, both either full or partial, would uh, would accommodate. I I think the text is far more intended to be taken straightforwardly and i would argue that the same way that jesus held them responsible in the first century for knowing the for 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 not knowing the exact time of his return and even said right it's like you you see the red sky at night uh, you see the red sky in the morning you see the signs in the weather you can't discern the signs of the times well, if we allegorize everything, how are we supposed to know the times, the signs of the times we're living in now? It just doesn't seem to be consistent. And I think the hermeneutic as a general rule within preterism is not consistent as a straightforward futurist view would be. So that being said, let me go ahead now <coughs> and take some of these passages that are mentioned here by Laura A. Um, she mentions uh, that some of the texts that are brought up are things like uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. Uh, and I by the way, I I I know that as I'm going through these, I'm going to come across a couple of things that um, that explanations will be offered. But I want to sort of preempt myself by mentioning something that I think we all need to be honest about, and I'm certainly going to be honest about it myself. Is that every one of these views, whether it's the futurist, the full preterist, the partial preterist, the um, the more eclectic preterist uh, view, and that kind of thing, there are reasons why these views are espoused. Otherwise, nobody would believe them. I mean, if they were patently false, very few people would hold the view. But all the views I'm excuse me, talking about here are held by lots of people. Entire bodies of churches hold these various views. And so if they were so obviously false and that kind of thing, nobody would believe them. But arguments are made for each of them. And I respect that arguments are made. Again, ideas of consequences and some of the outworkings of some of these views, I absolutely abhor. Um, however, if so, a genuine can believer can be genuinely wrong about some of those things, they can't be genuinely wrong about the gospel and be a believer. But you can be a believer and be genuinely wrong about eschatology, and so you can be a brother or sister in Christ and hold a differing view than the futurist uh, futurism view, a futurist view. But but I would say that it's misguided, and and I would push for a, a different hermeneutic on those things. But that said, in the same way that all of these views have some merit that supports them and thereby provides reasons to believe them, all of these views also have problems. They all have verses and passages that present an issue and that don't necessarily readily fit into that view. And I think we have to openly acknowledge that. That's not only true in this discussion, but it's also true in other uh eschatological discussions, things like the rapture. Uh, I believe firmly that the scriptures very plainly teach a pre-tribulational rapture. However, there are passages that do present some problems to that view, uh, that, that I always want to be careful not to just sort of morph into something that says more what I want it to say than what it might actually say. I happen to think the pre tribulational view has far fewer of those than the other views have, uh, and that 's why I land on it on top of the fact that I think that proactively the bulk of of of, of, uh, of that perspective uh, that perspective is built i should say on a consistently uh, it's a consistent approach to uh, hermeneutic, I should say, approach to interpretation of the scriptures. And in the same way, when it comes to the futurist view, which obviously would espouse the idea of a rapture and all that kind of thing, I think the same thing is true. I think there are lots and lots of problems with the preterist view, both the full and partial, many of the same problems with both. Um, but one of the biggest problems with the, the partial preterist view, which is why the full preterist view is sometimes called the consistent preterist view, because the partial is sort of deciding that... Even though all these other passages speak of the past, these these speak of the future. Well, why? I mean, some reasons are given, but they're kind of flimsy. You know, I mean, honestly, I, I think there are more problems with the full preterist view, except that at least they're consistent. You know, they're 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 taking the same approach, and then taking all those passages and trying to fit them under the umbrella of their view. Now, I think the futurist view has the least amount of problems among those we're talking about. And so that's why I would hold that view. So that said, I'll look at these passages, but understand that some of the answers that I offer for this may not, you may not like them. You may not agree with them. You may think, oh, okay, you're kind of bad at it. I, I don't think I am. And I'm just offering what what is a possible explanation of a couple of these. A few of these, I think, are pretty straightforward. But, uh, for example, in uh, Matthew 10:23, there is mention of... Uh, Jesus is talking uh, to his followers saying, when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the son of man, comes. Well, I I don't think that necessarily lends itself to any perspective in particular, because it just basically means you're going to, you know, you're always going to have more places to go and share the gospel. So, you know, don't hang around in one place at the expense of others. If they're not believing here, move on. You're not going to cover all the territory that goes on. I see where the idea is that um, the expectation is Christ would return in 70 AD, albeit spiritually and all this kind of thing. I don't think the passage necessitates that at all. Um, Chapter 16, um, chapter sixteen, verse twenty-seven and twenty-eight. Here we go, where it says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his father with his angels, and he will reward each according to his words as works. Assuredly I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that that fair that in fairness is a difficult one, isn't it? Uh, that must mean that Jesus is going to return in the lifetime of his hearers there, because there are some who are not going to, who are going to see all this. Well, um, you could argue that some, it should be, you know, basically most of you standing here today. I mean, if it's within 30 years of this time or 40 years of this time, a lot of people in that time, so I, I, maybe that's splitting hairs, but I would also argue a traditional explanation of that, uh that is kind of satisfying. I won't say it's not without its issues, but... Um, but a, a typical response to that would be, well, John, for example, John, uh, shortly in the transfiguration would see Jesus in his glory. We find out from Peter that they're talking about last things, uh, in that discussion where Peter, James, and John see Christ glorified with Moses and Elijah alongside of him. I would also argue that John would later, uh, in either before 70 AD or in the 90s uh, AD, depending on your, your view on that, When he wrote the book of Revelation, he saw Christ in his glory and all the things involved in that coming. Uh, Another theory that is an interesting one is that Saul of Tarsus, who is a Pharisee, uh, likely at this time, uh, he was a young Pharisee at the time of Stephen's stoning. And it may be that he was a young Pharisee here during this period of time as well, about ten years between the gospels and and uh and and you know the the events where Stephen is martyred roughly around ten years is generally uh, the generally held view. so Saul could very well have been uh, among those who were following Jesus at that time who were ultimately uh, trying to trip him up and all that kind of thing um, and Paul we know later on uh, is stoned outside of Jerusalem. Uh, the disciples pray for him. He describes, uh, what he saw there as being things that cannot be uttered in the third heaven and that kind of thing. So it may be that John and maybe possibly Saul, the Saul thing might be a stretch, although I don't know. I mean, it, it's a possible thing. But, um, anyway, so, um, that may be what's in view there. Although again, I will concede that is, that can be a tough one, but I, I find the answer that I shared to be relatively satisfying. So I don't know that it's that big of a thing. Uh, Mark 14. Moving into the Gospel of Mark now. Mark chapter 14, verse 61. Let's see what it says here. Mark 14, 61. <coughs> All right, we'll see if we can get these in before my voice gets a little too rough. While well, I'm looking this up, let me do this moved away from my green tea and honey for a day just to kind of go ahead and have some coffee again. But okay. Mark 14 61, but he kept silent and answered nothing. This is when Jesus is under a trial with the high priest and such. Again, the high priest asked him saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man standing at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So therefore this must have happened in 70 AD. Well, I don't know that Jesus was necessarily implying that those Pharisees, priests, and such, or that the high priest necessarily was going to see it in his lifetime. The high priest at this point would already have been an older man. Um, And did he, you know, if Jesus came in 70 AD and it is said that he came spiritually, then he wouldn't have seen him coming in the power with clouds and great glory. It's possible that what Jesus is referring to here is, in fact, in their eternal estate, far down the road, one day when Jesus comes and every knee bows and every tongue confesses of those on the earth and under the earth and such, um, it may very well be that that's what Jesus is telling them is going to happen one day and they're going to see him in his glory and all of this. Um, but again, I think if you're saying that Christ came spiritually in 70 AD, then this problem is, this passage is just as problematic for you as it would be for me. And so it's, it's, uh, but anyway, so that, that, I'll, I'll just sort of offer that as a possibility there. Chapter 13 of Mark, verses 26 through 30. Uh, yeah, this is where, okay, the coming of the Son of Man, ultimately where Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all things take place. In, in Mark 13, like Matthew 24, like Luke 21, Jesus is sharing the information that we typically refer to as the Olivet Discourse. Luke's is a little bit different, and in including also some of the events of 70 AD in there as well. But by and large, we're talking about the events of, of, you know, uh, in response to the disciples asking, well, when is the sign of your coming and all of these things? And Jesus says, I assure you, those of this generation will not pass away, that uh, the, those... Uh, Again, as he said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What generation is he talking about? Well, those in the preterist view would say that he's talking about the generation would be referring to those who are alive at this time when Jesus is saying these things. There is another group that would that are sometimes called the fig leaf generation that believe that because the fig tree that Jesus refers to, or the olive tree, I should say, that Jesus refers to, um, um, you know, would therefore refer to the rebirth of Israel and the nation that sees Israel reborn, uh, they will, uh, not pass away until these things come to pass. Um, that may or may not be what he's referring to. I hold a different view even from that. I certainly don't hold the first view. And I think even the second one could be, I think there's still time for that here on April, uh, October 20th, 2022. But, I think likely, most likely, what Jesus is referring to is that generation that sees the things that he's describing in the Olivet Discourse begin to happen and ultimately when they happen and don't stop, they ultimately lead to the the return of Christ. That's the generation he's talking about. Now we may be that generation as well, uh which may also make us part of the uh the olive uh, tree generation in that. Okay. Um uh and then um Mark eight thirty eight. There's just a couple more here. Mark eight thirty eight. My phone's about to die actually, so if I if it cuts out before I finish I'm not going to probably redo this whole thing, so let me just do what I can here and then uh, see if we can't get it all on eight uh, thirty eight where Jesus says, "For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels okay I don't think that necessarily demonstrates any of the views necessarily. Um, I think it just that's what's going to happen when he does come first uh, Thessalonians. Okay, here we go, 1 Thessalonians, uh, what passage here? 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, verses 15 and 16. Uh, for this, we say to you by the, by a word, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. For this, we say to you by a word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. First off, the coming of the Lord can mean two things. Okay. Just by way of explanation. His uh coming in the rapture, which he just spoke about earlier in 1 Thessalonians 4, and then also his second coming. The coming that he's referring to would re- require the context to be spoken of uh, <coughs> as well. My argument would be that this coming would be the rapture. But either way, um, this passage belies Paul—and I, I love to use this passage, by the way, when talking about uh, the imminence of the rapture, because Paul is expecting to see the Lord in his own day— uh, this is not something he saw thousands of years down the road. He was expecting Christ to come right then. Uh, I would argue for the rapture to snatch away the church uh, for larger reasons than I have left and whatever power is left on my phone here to explain um, and so I don't think this necessarily makes a case for Christ's return in the first century so much as it, it it makes the case for Paul's expectation of Christ to come in the first century. And then, of course, when he talks about the dead in Christ rising first ahead of those uh, who are alive and remain, that just speaks of the order of the resurrections that take place when we get our glorified bodies in the rapture of the church. And then Revelation 1, seven last one, see if we can get this one in before we die. Uh, my battery dies, that is. And uh, Revelation one seven, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him even so. Amen. Okay, well, when John wrote Revelation, um, again, if the view is that he wrote it before 70 AD, which again, I don't know that you make that case really strongly from the passages in, in Revelation, although a case is made, um, um, this passage just simply means what it says. You know, uh, when he comes... Uh, every eye will see him. Now, the question of even they who pierced him. Now, John, writing in, in Revelation, uh, you know, in, in, in AD 70 or AD 90, um, they're, you know, similar to our earlier discussion, there may have been some still alive during that time that would have seen Christ when he came. But again, if he came spiritually, then nobody saw him come. Nobody looked upon him whom they pierced because nobody saw. He came spiritually and by virtue of the new covenant established this uh, this idea. Now, if you have the partial preterist view and you believe that he's physically returning, okay, well, where's the record of his physical coming? I mean, there certainly would have been something written by John who would have likely seen it coming. (laughs) <laughs> and the first century would have spoken about his visible return, all the early church fathers and such. So we don't. And so I think it's just a very problematic view there. However, if you have a futurist view, then then clearly what's being viewed here, those who pierced them, refers to Israel as chosen. Although... You would argue, you can argue, that it's not just the Jews that pierced him, it's the Romans that pierced him, and even broader than that, it's all of our sin that put Christ on the cross. And so, one day, every eye will see him when he returns. Uh, certainly, those who pierced him in this context likely speaks of, of the Jews who rejected him, meaning Israel will see him whom they have pierced. And as we see in uh in the old covenant, uh like in Zechariah, uh, we see they'll they'll mourn for him as they see the one whom they've pierced, and they mourn for him like an only son, and so on. So um again, I I hopefully in this brief discussion, I mean this it may not feel that brief, you've been listening for 45 minutes. But in the overall discussion that could happen, uh, it is a much bigger discussion than this. But hopefully in this brief amount of time, we've given enough to think about and chew on and to consider the position you're holding, whether it's a futurist view or it's a preterist view in whatever form that you, that you might be embracing right now, um, to consider the approach to studying the scripture as you study the scripture. Does a view that generally espouses the idea of allegorizing prophetic texts, uh, really fairly treat what the text is actually saying, or does a futurist view that takes it at face value, maybe do a better job of that? I would argue the latter, and I don't mean to sound offensive about that, but, um, but you know, again, having mentioned some of the outworkings of some of these views, Um, And I'm saying, you know, none of these outworkings are necessary outworkings, so I don't want to paint with a broad brush or be unfair. Some of these outworkings of these views are more based on the personality of the holder of that view than necessity of the view itself, and so we want to make sure we're fair about that. Um, but I do think that ideas do have consequences in general, and I think it's worth considering uh you know when we talk about things like God's covenant with Israel, his faithfulness to it, what does that mean in regard to his faithfulness, if in fact these you know Israel's unfaithfulness and killing their Messiah brought an end to their covenant? well, what is that? What does that mean in light of Romans 9 through 11 and uh, Genesis 12, 15, 17, and so many other passages, Jeremiah 31 again? Um, you know, we have to weigh these things in and do our best to get a comprehensive view of what the scriptures say on the whole, and then bring that to bear on the passages that we study. No no theology or eschatology or any part of Bible study is contingent upon one verse We have to build a comprehensive, um, you know, systematic approach to any topic that we're studying in Scripture. And that should be our goal. It's mine. And I I try to be faithful to that. Uh, And when I'm not, and I I try to be honest about that and go back and revisit things that are implications of my maybe not taking uh, that approach honestly or something. Uh, I don't really think I'm doing that, but I guess none of us really do, right? So anyway, so that being said, um, thanks for watching and listening. And uh, and Laura A., thanks for asking the question. Maybe that was a lot more than you wanted to hear, but, uh, you know, again, I, I struggle being brief, and so hopefully there's some uh, level of uh, help involved in all that. So, But God bless you all, and thanks for watching and listening. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make His face shine upon you, be gracious to you, and give you peace forever. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and grace. We love you and praise you, and ask that, Lord, you would help us as students of your Word to be faithful to the text and allow it to tell us what it tells us, and help us to recognize recognize, uh, the importance of good, solid, in-depth Bible study. And we applaud anyone who does that. And we just pray that at the end of the day, that we would, uh, that we would be far quicker to unite around, um, a proper view of the gospel and our actual adhering to the gospel and our brothers, brotherhood and sisterhood in regard to that, than dividing over the things that, um, that maybe are, if nothing else, slightly peripheral, uh, as we mentioned earlier. But, Father, we pray that these discussions, these kinds of discussions, would be carried out in a spirit of charity and love and grace, um, although uh, certainly rigorously as well. Father, we do thank you again for your word, and we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give us a, a, the ability to study well and to understand these things more deeply and, uh, and, Father, to grow all the more mature thereby. Father, we love you and thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.